Welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Setacase. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. Uh, I love thinking about cool stuff. And so you're invited to come think with me as I think through this stuff with experts uh, in, in those fields. Today is going to be a theology episode. Um, I have with me a philosophical theologian, Guillaume Bignon, again. Um, and if you haven't heard our, our previous conversations, you got to go hear them. He will teach you how to uh, actually pronounce my podcast name, Parker's Pensées, Les, Les Pensées de Parker, uh, something like that. Um, maybe we can get him to do it one more time for us. But today we're going to be talking about justification and how Protestants and Catholics continually miss each other in the conversation on justification. And Guillaume's been working on this for a few years now. And we had an amazing conversation about it maybe six months ago. I really wish I would have recorded that one. So as I've said again and again on this podcast, this podcast is like an office hours where I'm recording a conversation with my guest so that you get to learn as I learn. So before we jump in to our conversation on justification, I want to thank everyone over on Patreon who's making this podcast possible. You guys are awesome. I, I seriously, genuinely love you guys. Thank you so much for all the support. Uh, if you are not a Patreon patron, if you're not a supporter of the podcast, but you love the show, please consider becoming a patron. You can find a link in the description. There's all sorts of goodies that you get, all sorts of uh, stickers and mugs and stuff that you can get for different amounts of support, uh, as well as early access to episodes. And right now, we actually have an, uh, a whole conversation with Guillaume Bignon that is behind the wall over there on Patreon. We're waiting until his book releases, but it's, uh, it's all about his life and his conversion which is awesome. So become a patron and go check that out today. Uh, the second way you can support the podcast is by looking at uh, my sponsors, Biblios Clothing Company. You can find a link in the description to a 10% discount code for your whole entire purchase. So go check that out. They have some really, really, really cool designs. They're a Christian company. Um, a, a friend of mine and his wife just started this clothing, clothing company and they're fans of the podcast as well. So support me by supporting them. Uh, look at that link in the description. It's biblioscloting.com slash discount slash Parker. And Parker's all caps. So you can type that in or just click the link. Um, let them know that I sent you. Um, that would be super duper huge. So there's two ways you can support the podcast if you're enjoying yourself. Without further ado, let's pull Guillaume in and let's get going on justification. Guillaume, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, man. Hey, Parker, it's my pleasure. And I have to note, there's definite progress in the way that you pronounce your <laughs> show's name. So uh, I <laughs> Thank you, man. It's not perfection yet. There's still too many silent letters that end up being pronounced. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> That's great. We're getting well, there. Let me try one more. Let me try just last for this episode. Le pet. Nope. Le, le, le pensé. Nope. One more time. I'm going to hear you do it and then I'll do it. <laughs> les pensées de Parker. Here we go. Les pensées de Parker. We're, we're, we're close. Very close. <laughs> okay. All right. That's good. Very nice. Oh, that's great. Well, dude, it's been, it's always fun talking with you. And we had a really, really good conversation on this um, because you've been working on it and you reached out over like Facebook Messenger. I think I was late to an appointment because we were just crushing it. Yeah. You had so much good stuff. 
about justification and how people keep missing this, uh, especially Protestants and Catholics when they're dialoguing with each other. So before we get going on justification and your work on it, how did you stumble into this, man? Your, your, uh, your work is on free will, and then you're over here working on justification. How'd that happen? Yeah, so it's a personal interest of mine. Uh, this one dates back a little bit to before um, my interest in free will even because uh, I, as a very young child, I grew up in the Catholic Church. Uh, I was very quickly out of that and then I was a professing atheist for much of my life, as you now know and <laughs> we've discussed uh, on the different show. Um, and as I explained in, the, in my coming book, Confessions of a French Atheist. Um, but since I was initially uh, in the Catholic Church in France, um, and then became an atheist for many years. And then I had a pretty uh, radical conversion experience when I was a young adult. Um, I did come to become a Protestant Christian at that time. And the question was raised by a number of folks. I go, well, you became a Christian again. Uh, why not uh, Catholic uh, rather than Protestant? And um, I was my straightforward answer to that question is simply that uh, as part of my conversion story, I came to understand and accept the message of the gospel as understood by the Protestants. That is that we are um, excused, we are justified, we are acquitted, we are uh, forgiven for our sins by faith in Christ and not by our good works. Uh, this is the way that it's typically presented. This is what I came to embrace as true and biblical. Um, and that was therefore a uh, entrance into the Protestant faith uh, in Christ. Um, and when it came time to say, well, then why not Catholicism? Um, I, the best answer I had for a long time was simply to say that I understand that Catholicism does not teach that. So mm -hmm. if that is true and Catholicism does not teach it and even rejects it uh, fairly explicitly, then that's why. Uh, that, that was the explanation. Uh, but there was some degree of frustration in my ability to really contrast the two positions, because even though I knew that uh, I understood my view as a Protestant and I understood that the Catholic view was different, I always struggled to explain what is actually the Catholic answer to that same question that Protestants are raising when they're discussing justification. And so that uh, ambiguity and that difficulty I had to explain the, the contrast has driven me to study pretty intensely the Catholic sources uh, simply out of personal interest for that important question that I think Protestants care greatly about, justification. But I really wanted to have a solid answer uh, as to why I'm not a Catholic that matches well with my explanation of why I am, in fact, a Protestant. So mm -hmm. I ended up studying quite a bit until I finally clicked. And so if we discuss tonight about, like you said, the common misunderstanding and why people talk past each other, it's mostly a biography of my own uh, confusions. Yeah. Uh, and sure. so I can work you out of that confusion the way that I found my way out of it. And that's what I hope to clarify tonight. Yeah, man, that's awesome. I had a... Um... An experience in college where one of my best friends uh, on my wrestling team, we both wrestled in college, and uh, he was he was super hardcore Catholic, and I thought I was super hardcore, like, evangelical, but both of us, turns out, didn't understand our positions very well, and we would fight about this all the time, and after I studied theology, um, you know, for the, the three or four years in college that I got into theology, by the end, I realized neither one of us had any clue about Catholicism or Protestantism or evangelicalism. And so I think it's super helpful to get clear on this stuff. And that's why I'm, I'm really pumped that you are a philosophical theologian working on this. Um, I love my theologians. I've studied with them. 
sometimes uh, it's it's kind of a camp thing. It's us versus them, and there's more heat than light, as as they say. So I'm I'm stoked for this. You start off. Um, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, you start off in the conversation that you and I have had and in the the work that you sent me by pointing out there's an equivocation uh, on justification. So can we start maybe what do the Protestants mean when they have when they talk about justification and then what do the Roman Catholics um, mean when they have, when they say justification? Yeah, so the, the Protestants typically, when they talk about justification, they are talking about something that's legal, that's an acquittal, uh, that's the word is forensic. So they talk about forensic justification. Uh, and it's simply the pronouncement that we, even though we're sinners, we're acquitted, we're forgiven. It's really the, the tribunal declaration uh, where let's consider the accused party and there's a proclamation, all right, innocent. And it's, it's this somewhat paradoxical uh, teaching of the Christian faith that even though we're guilty, in fact, uh, we're declared acquitted, right? We're let go for free on the basis of our faith in Christ, right? Uh, Christ pays the price on the cross for our sins. And then there's a substitution where for the fact that he paid the price, we are the ones who get to go free. So we are acquitted. And this is this legal environment that typically Protestants have in mind when they speak of justification. And they say that is obtained by faith in Christ. That's the, the criterion to obtain that justification. Um, but Catholics, when they use the word justification, they mean something very different. Um, that's that's the reason why uh, the traditional way of presenting the debate is, I think, very confusing because the typical way is to focus on sola fide, which is the Latin for faith alone. And it's a description of the fact that Protestants teach justification by faith alone. Right. And we understand that Catholics deny this. Right. They say that we're not justified by faith alone. Mm -hmm. But then the question is usually uh, asked, well, then if it's not faith alone, it's faith plus what? And so it's faith plus works. Yeah. But that that contrast is really misguided because it's focusing on the criteria for obtaining justification a thing that both camps understand differently. So they use the word differently. They're right. talking about two different things. And then we're asking what are the criteria to get that? Yeah. But if we don't agree on what that is, then we're talking past each other here. Yeah. So, Guillaume, that, that's that's exactly the debate that my friend uh, in college and I had where and, and we were wrestlers. So this would turn in this would get physical, which was great. But, you know, kind of silly where he would say, you know, you Protestants or you uh, evangelicals, you guys think that, uh, oh, you just say a magical prayer and now you're saved and you get to keep living however you want. And we're like, no, dude, we, we think that's what you, what you guys think, actually. Uh, you guys think it, you're earning your salvation. And and so I was like de-emphasizing good works and he was emphasizing good works. At, and we were speaking past each other. And this is exactly what was happening. We had different views of justification in mind. And so then we we're using those to collaborate each other and then sometimes physically collaborate each other. 
Yeah, and the, the place of good works is definitely one of those um, parts of the debate between Catholics and Protestants where I think there's a great deal of confusion because yeah. of that equivocation on the word justification. So well, I'll get to tell you a little bit how my discovery and clarifications actually affect the conversation on good works. But it's certainly one place where I find confusion on both sides, which results in bad arguments on both sides right. regarding the place of good works in justification and salvation more generally. Um, so I, I've answered to you uh, about what the Protestants understand uh, justification to mean. The Catholics, when they speak about justification, they talk about a process of transformation that includes a, an increase in personal righteousness. Mm -hmm. so that's simply their understanding. It's a process that starts at baptism and, you know, you have the, the general transformation. Your, uh, the grace of God is infused into you and you progressively become more and more righteous. And that's a process of actual transformation. So yeah. that's just a use of the word differently. And we can see that the two are not the same thing. So then to ask the question, what are the criteria in order to get it? is misguided because we're talking about different things. And once you have identified that we're talking about different things here, what I recommend is that we don't get too focused on the words, like the word justification. And I know some of the evangelical Protestants might say, but I love that word. That's you know, right. <laughs> and say, okay, but let's hold on to the concepts you have behind it and we'll yeah. definitely not let go of that. But let's uh, be loose and let's forget about the word here and ask the question, what is the concept? What is the, um, what, what, what's the status that we're trying to um, ask for our Catholics about, our Catholic friends about? Uh, the Protestant question is, what must I do to be acquitted, to have mm -hmm. eternal life, right? To be forgiven. And you don't need the word justification for that. But once you ask that question, then all of a sudden you can turn to the Catholic sources and ask that question quite precisely and not get bogged down by the fact that they talk about justification. Just realize when they talk about justification, they're not talking about that. Right. So we can just dismiss that. And then you can see that in the Catholic sources, there's actually quite uh, strong of a teaching, like quite consistent of a teaching uh, in answer to the question, what must I do to have eternal life? Yeah. And this is what I've realized is uh, the Catholic answer to the Protestant question and it's not faith plus works. Yeah, it's you have um, the uh, the teaching in the both in the councils in the catechism. I mean, it's fairly fairly widespread throughout the Catholic authoritative sources. The answer to the question, "What must I do to have eternal life?" is this: upon death, you must be found to be in a state of grace. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Protestant answer is, "Upon death, you must be found to have true faith in Jesus." Yeah. Right? So that's faith alone on the Protestant side, and that's fine. That's exactly what I'm affirming is true and is the Protestant view. Um, but on the Catholic side, forget justification. The answer is, upon death, you must be found to be in a state of grace. So now you ask the question, well, what is this state of grace? Right. Where yeah. I get in? And here the sources are quite clear on the Catholic side the, that the whole human race is uh, born into original sin. So this is a place where obviously Protestants, at least fairly conservative Protestants, agree yeah. with the Catholic view here uh, that we are born in sin. We are born in a state of original sin. And the Catholic teaching is that from that state of original sin, you must um, receive water baptism to get you into the state of grace. So if you read all of the teachings on the sacraments, uh, on the sacrament of baptism, the purpose, the, the mechanism 
of the of water baptism is what gets you into a state of grace. It's a water of regeneration. You know, the, the Catholics, one way of saying it is that they believe in baptismal regeneration. Yeah. So baptism gets you into a state of grace. And now you're in. And so if you were to die in that state of grace, you would have eternal life. Right. Like this is the teaching <laughs> about the, the, you know, the eternal uh, destiny of uh, human beings on Catholicism. Die in a state of grace, you're in. But if you um, commit a mortal sin after that, so let's say you, you, you are baptized, you come into a state of grace. The state of grace is not something that you're in forever necessarily. You could fall out of that state of grace by commit a mortal sin because Catholics distinguish between venial sin and mortal sin. So there's this mortal sin that has various conditions that are laid out in the Catholic sources. Here's what qualifies as a mortal sin. If you commit one, that removes your state of grace, that removes the grace that you have received in baptism. And now you are outside of the state of grace. You are condemned if you die in that state. Right. And here again, the sources are quite clear. If you die in a state of mortal sin, um, you will not have eternal life. Uh, there's no purgatory for you, right? Uh, everyone who goes to purgatory uh, on Catholicism does make it to uh, paradise after that, to heaven, mm -hmm. to eternal life, whichever language you're most comfortable with. But uh, basically, this is a binary outcome. In a state of grace, when you die, you're in. Out of the state of grace, you're out. And yeah. so this is really the Catholic answer to that Protestant question. The state of grace is what you want in order to have eternal life. You need to be in a state of grace at the in a state of grace at the moment you die, and that state of grace is something you obtain with baptism first, and then if you lose it through committing a mortal sin, you need to receive com confession from an ordained priest. So yeah. this is another sacrament of the Catholic Church, whose purpose here is to bring you back into a state of grace after you've fallen by committing a mortal sin. So here again, there's a couple of conditions that it must be satisfied to receive the sacrament validly. Right? But if you do, then this is what gets you back in. Yeah. So now you have a, a twofold answer to that uh, Protestant uh, question on the Catholic side is to say, you must die in a state of grace, which is something that you uh, get by either receiving baptism and then not committing a moral sin or committing a moral sin after that, but then receiving confession in order to return into the state of grace after you've made shipwreck of your grace. Yeah. So I think I remember uh, even in our first conversation at this point, I had, I had this question about sacraments and what, what role are, are sacraments playing here? Do they, I, uh, I've heard, I've joked with my Catholic friends about like being supercharged by the sacraments. It's really, uh, I know many of my Catholic friends probably don't like that. I, I'm sure they don't like that. Um, so I'm sorry about that, guys. But is the the sacraments? Do they help you? Um, not do they do they energize you or strengthen you against um, committing a mortal sin? I can't remember the 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 role of the sacraments in this uh, baptism and uh, penance state of grace. Uh, so, yeah, so, so so this is really, th that's one of the helpful things that appears when you frame the debate like I've just done, which yeah. is really posit uh, justification by faith alone on the Protestant side versus um, uh, salvation by being in a state of grace when you die, and that's therefore baptism followed by confession if necessary. It's that the real uh, the, the sacraments that really get you um, into heaven, right? So the the, the the, the ones that really matter to answer the question, will I have eternal life, are mm -hmm. baptism and confession, right? These both are sacraments. 
Yeah. But then there's a number of other sacraments. And that's one um, interesting piece that you find in many of the Catholic sources is that they make a huge deal about the Eucharist. Yeah. They say it's the central piece of the Christian service. It's really the, the, the big deal. And they say it's almost the most important sacrament. And uh, for Protestants, um, where we care a great deal about our eternal destiny, um, it's important to realize the Eucharist doesn't really contribute to that. It's not what actually gets you into the state of grace. Uh, it's not what gets you in the door of heaven. It's not the piece that really re saves you. The value of the Eucharist, I think you've correctly identified, is uh, if anything with respect to eternal life, is that when you receive the Eucharist on the Catholic view, it is a spiritual nourishment. Mm -hmm. So it's making you, you know, I don't know, you've used the word supercharged. Yeah. I don't think it's offensive. I think okay. it's power, right? It's a, it's a spiritual sure. nourishment. It's an empowerment to live the Christian life. And so you need to regularly take the Eucharist on the Catholic view to make sure that you don't come to commit a mortal sin, right? So it's not a modification of the systems that of the system that I've just described. It's just a participation in helping you not commit a mortal sin. Right. But the mortal sin is still the thing that would get you out of the state of grace. And if you do, the sacrament to come back is confession yeah. with absolution by an ordained priest. Yeah. So that's really the place of the sacraments here. And the baptism and confession being sacraments, it's very helpful to say that those sacraments are the things that get you in on Catholicism. Yeah. Um, before we continue on, uh, what what role do venial sins like? What, what do you know the etymology of that word too? Like, why what, why are they called venial sins? You know, uh, I'm not sure what the etymology was, but it's just a way of saying that they're not mortal, right? So it's just a, yeah. the, the the classification. So the the role of venial sins is obviously they, they have negative consequences, right? They're things that you should not be doing. Sure. Uh, but the 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 main difference is that these don't cut you off from the grace that you've received in baptism. Yeah. So they don't uh, condemn you to the wrath of God should you die in that state. So yeah. uh, in terms of the confession, the, the Catholic sources do say that you should confess venial sins as okay. well. You go to confession, uh, that you should really confess things that sins that you're aware of and that you should repent and that there is benefit and nourishment for you in the sacrament of confession about venial sins as well. But they make it very clear that the big deal in confession is not venial sins, it's mortal sins, because these are the ones that get you out. And confession is here to correct that. The confession yeah. is here to undo the loss of the grace, the state of grace. Okay. So, um, so, so purgatory plays a role here uh, as well. But again, like the most important here is it's baptism and then dying in a, in a state of grace. So you're doing penance for any mortal sins you've committed. But venial sins, are, are those um, what are being purified out of you uh, in purgatory? Is does, does that sound right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, purgatory is this uh, Catholic teaching that after uh, death, um, those who have... So th this is the language. I, I haven't memorized it, but it's somewhat yeah. like that. Uh, th those who die, they are in a state of grace, right? So there's, there's no luck for you if you're not in a state of grace. But if right. you die in a state of grace, but you're not yet fully purified, so you're not fully morally perfect, uh, which uh, I suppose Protestants would say, well, that's just about everybody. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> if you die, it's not finished, uh, unless maybe some Wesleyan uh, on, in a very uh, uh, very conservative side, we say that yeah, you can reach perfection this side of uh, of death. Um, but yeah, so you die in in a state of grace, uh, but you're not fully yet 
morally uh, perfect, then you get into this uh, state or place uh, called purgatory, in which you suffer some uh, refining uh, fire. You know, so again, to what extent it's metaphorical? Um, not every Catholic is going to agree, but there's this state or uh, place where you undergo this purification by some degree of suffering um, that prepares you to be then morally perfect and enter into eternal life, the beatific vision, paradise, you know, whatever you call the final state of yeah. union, perfect uh, union with uh, with God. And so what I, what's important to realize about purgatory is that it has no role in determining the uh, final t- target, right? So uh, there's no change of trajectory. If you make it to purgatory at all, you will make it to heaven on Catholicism. Yeah. yeah. That's it. So uh, there's there's some place of purgatory in terms of discussing the place of good works and uh, meriting eternal life, which is another big question around uh, those those debates. Um, and in purgatory, there is some degree of satisfaction that you make for your own sins. So okay. obviously, Protestants will have tremendous problem with that kind of language or teaching. Right. But it's not really at the heart of the question, what must I do to have eternal life? It's just something that will follow your death if you have died into a state of grace. Yeah. Okay, so I want to I want to get back to the the equivocation uh, question, but real quick before we do, as we're st- uh, we're still on the the Catholic system, do you know what role uh, the Holy Spirit plays in in uh, baptism and uh, confession and uh, the the whole system you just laid out? Like, wh- what role does the Holy Spirit play? Yeah, so the the language uh, surrounding those sacraments is not necessarily heavy on the role of the Holy Spirit in the Catholic sources, but uh, you can see that there's a definite work, a spiritual work that is performed um, in the sacraments of baptism and in confession. And so uh, the the Catholic is fully uh, free to load uh, as much activity of the Holy Spirit into that as they please. Mm. Uh, so th- there's a, an actual change, right? Uh, so the the uh, infant or the uh, adult convert uh, who receives water baptism on Catholicism has an actual mark uh, that's done on his heart, right? So in, in ways that are very similar to what a Protestant might say about the work of gener- regeneration yeah. uh, of an unbeliever who comes to genuine saving faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings this about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that this is not a huge point of disagreement. The place of the Holy Spirit is just that he's going to be present in a different mechanism to bring you in a state that's that is saved on the protestant side he's the one who brings you to saving faith on the catholic side he's the one who performs the transformation to make you into a state of grace uh, from water baptism and subsequently if you commit a mortal sin and receive confession there's you could also see the uh, the forgiveness and the uh, reinsertion into a state of grace as being the work of the holy spirit for sure but it is something that is brought about by the reception of the valid sacrament so it's really the sacrament that is the means of doing this uh, and so we would just they would probably just say that the holy spirit works through the sacrament yeah yeah okay okay so so you have brought up this you know really interesting point about you know what what counts as a as a valid baptism uh and and there's a, there's a whole debate from augustine and stuff like that about the you know the priests and whether they were so what, yeah, what, what counts as, as uh, valid baptism and then also valid penance as well? 
Yeah, so these these are going to be the, the the fine prints on the sacraments uh, because they're the ones who get you in uh, into the state of grace. So you want to be sh- sure that you actually receive them correctly. Right. That uh, you don't you're not under the assumption that you're in a state of grace, but you haven't actually received them. So uh, without diving too much into the fine print because it can get quite technical. Essentially, for a baptism to be valid, you need three ingredients. You need the right matter, the right form, and the right intention. So the matter is uh, the actual uh, product you use so you need water right so it's a water baptism you cannot it's funny there are some official uh, decrees in the uh, official sources the canonical sources of the catholic church that say you cannot be baptized with beer <laughs> so, okay like they had to deal with it and say no that that doesn't work so right. Water it is. So matter, you must have the right form, which is the uh, the formula, the proclamation that you do as you baptize. So you need mm-hmm. to have a Trinitarian uh, formula. And uh, you need uh, the right intention. You need the intention of doing what the church does in baptism. So if those three are there, uh, the baptism is valid and is uh, to be received. So w- what's interesting with that explanation here is that um, the Catholic sources are quite clear that a Protestant baptism that satisfies those three is valid. Okay. So oh. this is where my uh, conversation about well, like, like, contrasting the right mechanisms for salvation here uh, it, it becomes interesting is that we can apply it to individuals and ask, okay, on the Catholic view or on the Protestant view, are these individuals possibly saved? And when you you and I want to try to assess, well, if Catholicism is true, uh, what happens to us? Um, it's helpful to see that baptism on the Protestant side is seen as valid by the Catholic side, as long as you have matter, form, and intention. Okay. Um, so this is, this is what's, what's helpful, but, um, but we wouldn't have, we'd still, for all the mortal sins that we've committed as Protestants, we wouldn't have valid that's penance, right? right? And, so, and so this is one of the enlightening conclusions that I was able to draw from those, uh, the analysis of this mechanism is that when I apply it to our situation, you're quite right. Uh, we have baptism that works, but then you better not commit a mortal sin right. because uh, committing a mortal sin would get you out of the state of grace. And then in order to come back in, you would need to receive the sacrament of confession. Mm-hmm. And so if you ask, uh, like, I don't know what, what exactly your life story is in terms of the chronology, but this is where it gets interesting about me because I, uh, as a Protestant, my baptism counts for nothing uh, according to Catholicism. Not because I had uh, improper matter, form, or intention, but because it wasn't my first baptism. Oh, I was, yeah. I was raised in the Catholic Church, so I was baptized as an infant. Mm-hmm. So if Catholicism is true, then this is the baptism that got me into the state of grace in the first place. And then I uh, very eagerly apostatized apostatized and lived uh, as an atheist for many years and committed all sorts of sins that definitely qualify as mortal sin according to to the sources. So there was no doubt I lost my state of grace if there was such a thing in my infant baptism. And then now to return, my adult conversion followed by a Protestant baptism counts for nothing because it's not baptism that gets you back in. It would be a, uh, receive, receiving the sacrament of confession with the absolution the absolution from an ordained priest. And I have not received that. So it follows that I'm declared to be outside of the state of grace if Catholicism is true in virtue of the chronology here. Yeah. So I do have some skin in the game in those uh, debates. Um, so I, I, there's just one caveat. Uh, yeah. You can actually, in the uh, Catholic sources, you can receive um, the absolution of the sacrament of confession without uh, going in front of an ordained priest. Oh, wow. If, 
if you satisfy the following two conditions. One, you must have perfect contrition, not just attrition. So the, 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 the sources distinguish between uh, attrition and contrition. Um, and basically, attrition is some degree of feeling bad about your sins, and contrition is perfect. Uh, that is, it's perfect attrition. So uh, okay. if you have contrition, you have perfect contrition. Um, that uh, is a one of the conditions to receive the, the forgiveness and therefore to come back into the, uh, the the state of grace without the absolution of the priest. You must have perfect contrition. And okay. You also be, must be such that you are um, you intend to receive the sacrament of confession as soon as is feasible. Okay. So if you have those two things, the sources declare, then immediately you receive the the benefit of the sacrament as if you had received it. You you come back automatically into a state of grace. So without. Yeah. So so you have received uh, a Catholic baptism. Correct. You um. You, the Lord, or just your own ruminations, whatever, brings up a mortal sin that that he reminded you of it. And uh, you have, let's say you have perfect contrition. Maybe that's super, um, do they think that's possible? Or is that just like, no one's going to get there, but it, it is maybe possible for like a, a super saint, but not for someone like you or me. I don't know that this would be restricted to a super saint. I mean, the sources don't give an inclination, uh, don't give a sense that this is extremely impossible, extremely hard to, to okay. bring. Um, so th this seems to genuinely describe a situation that they say, yeah, that that, that could happen. Like we're, we're saying this is a, a means to receive that. It's it's a real caveat. Okay. Um, so they, they describe it like that. Now, first, as a Protestant, I think I share the same worry that you seem to have here. Is like, well, because uh, we're Calvinists too, right? Yeah, <laughs> who can have a perfect contrition? Like this, right. is, this is not for me. So I'm skeptical that I would have perfect contrition. Right. Right. But wholly aside from whether that's even yeah. um, the proper understanding of that, right. it's obvious that I don't qualify for the second condition, which right. is but, I have no intention of receiving confession. Well, so that, that, that's what I wanted to ask. So, so let's just say that that you you know came to your senses, and whoever uh, is watching this, my my good Catholic friends are they've been praying for you for a while, and you finally uh, you you have your contrition, and then you do have this intention to go and get absolution, and you're you're driving to get absolution, and you get in a car wreck, and you you pass away. Yes. Um, was the intention enough, or did you have to complete the act? No, no. The, the intention was enough. That's what I'm saying. Okay. The, okay. Those those two conditions would be met in that scenario uh, gotcha. if I have uh, perfect contrition and the desire to receive the sacrament as soon as possible. Then immediately I jump back into the state of grace. So that's okay. one caveat that's there. But I obviously don't qualify. So it remains that this system really doesn't have a room for me to be in a state of grace right now. Yeah. So. Um... Yeah, so you would die in a because uh, you don't have the intention. You die in a state of not in a state of grace, and so therefore not even purgatory. Um, That's just, right. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, um, I want to continue on with that, but for first, uh, I think it's important to note that uh, you have found that uh, there are Catholic authors who also have seen the same equivocation that you've put your finger on. Um, can Can you say a word about a couple of those guys? Yeah, so um, the the equivocation here is actually seen by a number of folks, uh, and sometimes I, I read them and it's like, yes, you're getting it, you're just about there, yeah. and then they take a wrong turn and they fumble uh, in the application. So, yeah. uh, for example, you have Hans Kung, um, who sees that there is this equivocation, 
um, in his uh, book Justification, what he says is that he's contrasting the um, the Protestant view of Karl Barth with the teachings of the Catholic Church, and he's saying they are basically in agreement. Okay. So uh, what Kung does is that he starts with the same uh, remarks that I make, which is we use the word justification to talk about different things. Mm-hmm. So forget about the fact that one side says we're justified by faith alone and the other one says we are not justified by faith alone. Since the disagreement is merely verbal on this, right? So the the, the, the yeah. word is not the same, then just because we say those things, it does not follow that we disagree. And so far, yeah. I'm fully with him. Mm-hmm. The problem is that he then takes this to say, well, in fact, we don't disagree. We agree fully on justification, and that's great. There is no debate. Barth and the Catholic Church are in the same camp, and that's really the the, the conclusion of, of Hans Kuhn. Yeah. Uh, and Peter Krift is another uh, Catholic philosopher who's going in that route where he says he sees that there's an equivocation. Uh, he says, well, therefore, it, there's not an, a disagreement just because one says yes, the other one says no to the same worded question when we understand the words differently. And so Peter Krift goes all in and says, well, therefore, the Reformation was a big misunderstanding. Yeah. It was a big misunderstanding, and we corrected it in 1999 when the Lutherans and the Catholics came together and made a joint <laughs> declaration on justification. They said, we're not disagreeing. It's resolved. The, the giant has been slain. Uh, we're, we're fine. We're, we're all together, and we're uh, agreeing on that. And so that, uh, I think, is very misguided, but it starts with the right remarks. It starts with the detection of that equivocation. Yeah. The problem is that once you've asked that question of uh, justification and you realize there is the equivocation, you do need to ask the, you need to stop foca- focusing on the word justification. You do need to ask the Catholic the answer to the Protestant question, like I've just done. Yeah. And when we do that, we see that the answer is not the same, that one side says faith alone, the other side says baptism followed by confession if necessary. Yeah. And that is the right way to frame the debate. Now you're comparing apples and apples, and you can see that the answers are not the same. One says faith, the other one says baptism followed by confessions if necessary. Yeah, and I I get the um, I get like the impetus by um, guys like like Kreeft, uh, who I think was Presbyterian beforehand, uh, before his conversion. I I get that, but you know, like Dr. Kreeft, uh, if Guillaume is right, then you should be like warning us about this. We need to go to, we need to get absolution, man. Like I, I haven't had any Catholic baptism. And so, um, yeah, like he, he needs to, to say something more to us than just, it's okay. Yeah. So I, I don't really blame Peter Crift for uh, teaching what he thinks is right here. Uh, I think he genuinely cares that we don't fight unnecessarily over something where we, where he thinks we agree. Yeah. Um, my concern is that he's wrong. We don't agree, and therefore there are some pretty serious circumstances, pretty serious consequences to that uh, disagreement. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so sticking with that point, though, um, we wouldn't like if, if if you need absolution or perfect contrition, um, we're not doing that. Like we're not maybe the perfect contrition, um, but I, it doesn't matter for me because I haven't had Catholic baptism, so. I, I need those things if the Catholic doctrine is right. And so, um, yeah, I get that we don't want to fight and we want to be ecumenical. But mm, if if that teaching is right, then even though we're not fighting, some of us are not going to be with you uh, and the Lord because we don't 
we, we didn't know. I didn't know that I was supposed to get that. Yeah, and, and but but here Peter Krift, I think, affirms basically sola fide at this point. Uh, okay. He's, he does uh, view that. So <clears throat> it's a bit complicated because I, I've gone through several of his books and in some of them, he's super explicit about that to say, well, you know, we meant something different. We actually agree. And therefore, yes, we're saved by faith. It's not by works. Oh, uh, gotcha. Okay. So he's, he's like that. So if, if he's uh, consistently teaching that, then he has no problem with you, me being completely uh, sure. saved by our faith in Jesus as Protestants. Yeah. Um, but there's also places where he does seem to attack sola fide, so it's, it's not super consistent there. But the, the, the main point that I do when I highlight his work is, say, he thinks that the whole thing was a misunderstanding and that yeah. we should, there's no confusion and the Reformation should be over. And yeah. what I'm saying is, no, he's right about the equivocation, which means that there's not a strict disagreement just from the fact that one side says yes and the other one says no. But yeah. when you clarify and ask the right question, from the Catholic side, the answer comes and it's baptism and confession when we say faith. So that's not yeah. the same. Okay. Okay. That's good. And then just a, another note, because um, again, a lot of my listeners uh, who are Catholics, they know their stuff really, they're really sharp. And so someone might bring up like uh, Vermigli, who you've noted used uh, justification in a different sense than Protestants typically use it. Can you, can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, so the, the Vermigli is interesting because he's as Protestant as one gets. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's one of the champions uh, the, uh, of the Reformation. Um, so no one would accuse him of being a, a latent Catholic. Uh, but he does use the word justification to talk about uh, what we typically call sanctification from the Protestant side. So yeah. there are those two pieces of the uh, legal acquittal and then the actual inner transformation. Um, and... Uh, Vermigli calls that say, that process of transformation, he calls that the second justification. Yeah. So I, I think that's helpful, actually, to show that we don't we shouldn't care about the words here. Yeah. Right? What's really important is the concepts behind them. And so when the Catholic says, well, yes, there is transformation in there, he calls that justification. Typically, Protestants say, well, okay, that's what that's what I call sanctification. Um, so we're just talking past each other. That's fine. But Vermigli is a Protestant and he's using the word justification also to talk about what I call sanctification. Yeah. And that, that's fine too. Just different words as long as we understand each other. So Vermigli is, is helping to make the case that we shouldn't worry too much about those words and ask more about the concepts behind them. Yeah. Oh, that's really helpful. Well, <clears throat> I think things are about to get a little bit more messy. Uh, you have this this note about righteousness uh, being imputed or infused. And man, you say Protestants teach infusion and Catholics teach imputation, which seems like you're just mixing a match and confusing with it. Help us out, man. What is going on here? Yeah. So there's a lot of ways of phrasing what is somewhat the same disagreement between uh, Protestants and Catholics. Uh, so it's about the place of good works or the, the kinds of righteousness that we're getting. Um, and so you have a lot of, uh, of, um, uh, uh, splits between Protestants and Catholics that are described like this. They will, we will say that uh, uh, justification is declarative mm -hmm. uh, on the Protestant side and transformative on the Catholic side. Or that, uh, that people would say that the Protestants teach that uh, justification is a legal acquittal uh, and the Catholics teach that it's an inner renewal. Mm -hmm. right? So one deals with the tribunal, the other one is the hospital. Right? Yeah, so you're legally declared uh, innocent. The other one is you actually healed, uh, transformed inner renewal. Uh, 
And that's that's the divide on what is allegedly justification. But once again, when I point out that no, it's purely on the words justification that there's any disagreement here, but not on the concepts behind them, it should become obvious that all of those concepts are taught by both sides. Hmm. So if you look at the Protestant side, yes, we restrict the word justification for that uh, declaration, for that legal acquittal, for the tribunal, and we talk about sanctification for that transformation, that uh, um, renewal, or the hospital. Right? And uh, that, we just use a different word, we call it sanctification, but uh, Protestants universally, constantly teach that if you're genuinely justified, if you genuinely have a saving faith, then sanctification necessarily follows. Yeah. There was always going to be good fruits expressing, demonstrating that there was a genuine justification to begin with, that there's a genuine saving faith there. Yeah. So all of those things are present on the Protestant view. We just don't include it under the banner of justification as a word. Right. But you know, again, the words, forget them. And now right. if you turn to the Catholic side... Um, yes, they clearly teach that we are transformed, right? All of those things. But you do need to realize there is also a legal acquittal on the Catholic side, right? Uh, on the Catholic view, the criterion to pass the judgment is different than the Protestant side, because on the Protestant side, it's faith alone. On the Catholic side is, as I said, uh, being in a state of grace, which you get by baptism and confession if necessary. Mm -hmm. But clearly, on the Catholic view, you are undergoing a judgment. You are going to account for your life, account for your sins, and there's an outcome of a judgment, acquitted or uh, condemned. Yeah. And so that forensic aspect is present, whether they call it justification or not is nobody's business. What's important is to realize we both teach imputation. Also, again, I haven't really talked about righteousness and imputation, but we both teach acquittal right declaration and transformation and that uh, both of them will necessarily be there for a person that's genuinely saved yeah okay so i wonder if a, if if a catholic theologian a roman catholic theologian i know some of my my protestant friends especially the reformed folks are saying say roman catholic right because we're all catholic if we're true uh whatever guys but okay there's um there's a there's an aspect where uh, the roman catholic might say Look, uh, you guys have this legal fiction of of being righteous before God, being justified. You're not really, but on our view, um, there's an infusion going on, and we're growing in our justification. And so, you guys have a legal fiction where we have the real thing. It's actually happening in 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 real time as we're growing in in our justification. What, what do you make of that? And even I, I hear a lot of protestants talking about how we should drop the legal fiction language how it's useless and blah blah and probably falling anti right in that um i mean legal fiction is, is one thing but uh, we, we will bracket your comment about anti right for just a second <laughs> yeah thoughts about what he says as well sure. um but uh, yes, so the, 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 the argument or the objection that somehow the Protestants have a legal fiction, right, but that the Catholic side has an actual transformative uh, justification is exactly the kind of objection that I think my clarification is helping show you that it's really misguided. Yeah. And not because uh, both sides have both the uh, acquittal and the transformation. We just don't put it under the banner of justification on the Protestant side, but we have both of those things. Mm -hmm. And it, it's now showing you that if that's a concern of the Catholic with an argument against the Protestant side, that argument is actually self-refuting. 
Yeah. Because it's now complaining about a feature of Protestantism that's actually present in the Catholic view, namely the fact that you are acquitted and that it's not on the basis of your good deeds either. Right. So yeah. there is a transformation that happens. Right. So both sides teach that. So you can't just say, well, it's a legal, legal fiction that doesn't change anything. Well, yeah, we are going to be changed because we've been declared righteous. There is a sanctification that will necessarily follow. So it's effective. It is bringing this about. Um, but yeah. also on the Catholic side, you shouldn't think that there is not this legal fiction that you're describing because you have exactly the same interesting, like a fun, almost paradoxical fact that a person who is in fact guilty ends up acquitted. Yeah. What if they say, look, you guys have the acquittal coming, you know, you put the cart before the horse because you have acquittal happening and then your your sanctification is happening. But we say you're not acquitted until the, the sanctification actually happens. So you already, you are purified and then you're acquitted. It, yeah. w- would they say that? Yeah, absolutely. It's a very Catholic uh, understanding because usually discussions about the acquittal end up focusing on the end of time, or at least on the end of your life. Uh, But yes, the the, the final justification, uh, the final judgment is where uh, Catholics tend to discuss the matter. And they say, you know, at that point, you have been fully transformed. You have been fully justified. So which... Protestants would describe as we have been fully sanctified, right? Uh, but you, you, you're, you're fully there, uh, and then you're declared righteous. But at that time, you in fact are righteous, right? So they, they would say that's that's a contrast. The the, the problem is um, that on the Protestant side, if you also have the luxury of just moving things at the end and, and just talking about the final judgment, then yes, it's also a time at which the Protestant may have been fully sanctified, and so he is also innocent. But um, you can circumvent the, the 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 question of when do we uh, when, when do we assess it right when do we assess our yeah. righteousness uh, i would uh, i would insist that the protestant view is correct that we are declared righteous from the very moment we come to faith i mean the bible the paul's teaching is you have been justified it's, it's not that it's going to uh, wait till the end of times you are declared uh, innocent acquitted on the spot but uh Wholly aside from that, there shouldn't be a debate because, and that's a point that uh, Turretin uh, makes with great force uh, against the Catholic objection, is to say, even if you're looking at the person at the end of their lives and they're fully righteous now, right? They've been transformed. They, they've, make it to the, they've made it to the top. They are, they are at the top of their game in terms of righteousness. Yeah. They still to have to account for the fact that they have committed past sins. Right. It's a tribal, it's a tribunal, it's a legal uh, account that you have to give of your life. And here on the Catholic view, no matter how righteous you are now at the end, you are still guilty for the things that you've committed in your life. Right. You have actually done those things. Yeah. You've now had the sacramental system bring you into a state of grace. You've been into purgatory, perhaps, and then worked them out of your system. And so you're super righteous, but you're still acquitted for things that you've in fact committed right. and that spread is what allegedly they complain about under the banner of legal fiction and mm. i'm saying to coque <laughs> i'm <laughs> saying uh, that argument attacks your view just as much as ours and so let's just drop it we both agree that some people who have committed sins end up acquitted for them on the basis of what christ has done yeah because because on that view um again okay, it's just like a protestant misunderstanding in my head that like 
uh, the Catholics, Catholics think Roman Catholics think they're they're earning their salvation. They're working it off with good works, but that has nothing to do with anything we've talked about. The whole point, yes. the, the whole mechanism is baptism and uh, penance, which. I guess uh, I'm sure a lot of Protestants would say, "Well, penance is a good work," but not not in their system. They're not they're not saying that. Or if you go to purgatory, you're not you're not somehow doing good works in purgatory. You're just being uh, the the sins are being burned off metaphorically or or literally. Yeah, so you're not there in purgatory helping the old lady cross the street, right. doing your good deeds uh, to to earn some good points. But there is very strong language. So here. I want to put a caveat for the Protestants who say, no, 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 you're trying to save too much of the Catholic view to say they're too nice here. Uh, There might be some some grounds for Protestants to say, look, look at the sources and what they say about what you do in purgatory. You're earning some some merit uh, of eternal life, and that's really problematic. And my view here is I want to leave room for those Protestants to make their case here, and I do think that there are some really problematic languages used about what's happening in, uh, in purgatory. But it's not at the point where it's affecting the destination, right? So the the question of how do you make it to have eternal life on the Catholic view, like you said, does not involve good works at all. It's not uh, performing good deeds and somehow you're judged on their basis and it's great. It's purely the sacramental system, baptism and confession, and even confession with penance. You know, you said like there's good works that you need to do as a result of that. They are not part of what gets you in. Right. You actually returned into a state of grace before you do the works of penance. Yeah. So you first have the confession to the priest, then the absolution, and then the works of penance. And the absolution happens before the works. So the works don't yeah. contribute to your coming back into the state of grace. The only evidence that it was genuine, yeah. which sounds a lot like what Protestants say. Exactly. About of good works. Exactly. They don't bring you into salvation. They're just an expression of the fact that you've genuinely come to saving faith. Yeah, I remember that was a really big uh, shift in my thought when I when I found that out because because I didn't have a good a view of of a Protestant view of good works either. And then once I found that out, and I found out, oh, you guys are just using good works as an evidence to show to show yourself. Look, I do care because if I if I was uh, if I did have good contrition or if I did have uh, if I have been uh, given absolution from this priest, then I, I would go and act on that. I would go and do that. If I really was contrite, I would do what he said to do. Um, and so, yeah, it's just an evidence. So I, I thought that was, that was really helpful. Yeah. And, and uh, one, this is one uh, very classic uh, argument, counter argument between Catholics and Protestants about uh, the text on in Matthew 25 with the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Mm. This is a classic argument from Catholics against the Protestants by saying, look at this. It's not faith alone in there. You know, Jesus is describing the final judgments and uh, the sorting of the sheep and the goat. And what is the basis on which he says that they're going to be admitted or rejected? They are good works. You know, you fed me, you gave me a drink when I was thirsty, you welcomed me when I was a stranger. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, it's the big teaching about, well, when did we do that? Well, whatever you did to these, that what that's what you did to me. Uh, so that's the point of the uh, parable here. But it remains that here it seems to describe a, a judgment on the basis of the good works that were performed. And yeah. so the Catholics constantly use this. Uh, I mean, I, and, and even like really smart, like philosopher Catholics, like Frank Beckwith uh, uses Matthew 25 against the Protestant view uh, and says, look, this is judgment on the basis of good works. Uh, Protestants are wrong. And yeah. so my response to this is the 
traditional defense from the Protestant view is to say, look, this is the final judgment, and you can make a final judgment on the basis of works as a proxy to uh, correctly identify that there is genuinely a saving faith. And this is what uh, even anti Wright says also, that the final judgment always coheres with the initial declaration precisely because good works will necessarily follow from the initial uh, coming to saving faith. That's the consistent Protestant answer. But forget, I I don't have to convince you that this is a good answer (laughs) as a Catholic because you must use the same one. Once again, he's not looking at the sheep and the goats and asking, well, which ones have been baptized and which which ones have received the sacrament of confession. The good works must be seen as a proxy to something else and a, a successful proxy, right? A, an authentic, a, a reliable proxy to something else. And the Protestant says the, they are a proxy to faith. And the Catholic must say that they are a proxy to being a, in a state of grace. Yeah. And so that's that's another argument that I find to be self-refuting if used by Catholics against Protestants once we fully understand what the two systems are that we must contrast. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. And and. Again, a lot of a lot of Catholics who use that argument don't understand how it 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 is a snake biting its own tail. But again, a lot of Protestants don't understand our theology either, and we don't. A lot of us don't understand. I was guilty of that, and I'm still growing. I got all these you know stupid books behind me. I still got to read. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, there there's misunderstanding on both sides. Genuine misunderstanding, and then right. and on top the, of that, equivocation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. But you know, if we're on the side now of criticizing Protestant misunderstandings about this, um, what I've just explained shows you that there's also a whole stream of Protestants' criticism of Catholicism that I think fails to land. Yeah. And it, it's all the, Protest, the the concerns about being saved by good works, precisely. So right. again, there's different ways of phrasing the objection, but at bottom, if the uh, system that I've described on the Catholic side is in fact the, the, the Catholic view, right, that it's by baptism and confession, um, this there is no place for good works in there whatsoever. Yeah. So the the criticisms from the Protestant side to say, well, you just put good works under justification, is a, just another time where we fail to see that they mean something else by justification. Yeah. So yeah, if they meant what we mean by justification and they put good works in that, then that would be really problematic. Yeah. But that, they don't mean the same thing, and so it's 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 as if the Protestants is complaining that there's good works involved in sanctification. Yeah. Well, well no, <laughs> there is no good works in sanctification. So <laughs> this is not a strong criticism to bring. Now, I think there's still room uh, for Protestants to complain about the place of good works when there's language of meriting eternal life and yeah. whatever happens in purgatory. But it's not a criticism of the sacramental system of what gets you into eternal life. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Well, you... Um... You did bring bring up NT right a little bit. Um, can can we go there? Can, do, you, do you got enough on on right or maybe even Piper too? I don't know if you've if you looked into Piper's view and stuff, but can you help us think through that discussion as well? Yeah, absolutely. So um, NT right, we're going to take as a representative of the so-called new perspective on Paul. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I know there's plenty of differences with them uh, within the the camp of the yeah. so-called new perspective, uh, but I think it's it's fair to take NT right, and I think is a very good. Um, is a very good case to show uh, the place, like wh- what does that make to the, the debate and the clarification that I've uh, just brought about? So uh, N.T. Wright, uh, along with the new perspective, essentially says um, Protestants in the uh, traditional reform camp have typically misunderstood um, Judaism 
And so when Paul says that uh, he criticizes uh, the Jews of his time and says we're, we're uh, justified by faith and not by works, there's conversation about what those works are. Is this just uh, good works, like moral good deeds, or is this more talking about the works of the law? Mm-hmm. And therefore, not being, not contrasting like uh, a, a works righteousness with the right view of the justification, but contrasting a view that would say you need to be uh, circumcised in order to be justified. Right? You need to enter into the Mosaic law in order to uh, become uh, a right child of God, uh, forgiven justified child of God. Yeah. So th- there's there's that uh, correction that the new perspective sought to bring to that uh, reading of Paul when he says that we're justified by faith and not by works. And what my point is about all of this is that it's actually irrelevant to the Protestant Catholic divide precisely because the Catholic is not teaching that you're saved by those good works. Yeah. Right? So the justification, yes, forget the word justification once again, but the salvation, the, the acquittal, the eternal life on Catholicism is not obtained by those good works. So the text from Paul saying we're justified by faith and not by works, the and not by works should not be a point of controversy between Protestants and Catholics if they understand correctly their own system of baptism and uh, confession. Yeah. And the way you see this is uh, highlighted is that anti Wright himself, I found... Uh, I was uh, expecting reading anti-right on justification. I was expecting that he would disagree with my Protestant convictions quite a bit. Uh, And I found him to be extremely explicitly defending a lot of the things that I found really essential here. Hmm. He's full on board with justification being a legal declaration. Like he's, he's like really buttressing this point over and over again that it's forensic, it's legal, it's a declaration. A sinner is guilty, but he's proclaimed acquitted. It's wonderful. It's part of the gospel, and it's all in Paul. Hmm. Uh, you don't expect that to come from N.T. Wright, but that's really what he does. Yeah. So he's fully on board with that. And when he's debating with John Piper, none of those pieces are at stake in their conversation. Okay. The one thing, there's really only one thing on which they disagree. And so maybe some person will say, well, uh, yeah, but it's a huge thing. Uh, yeah. But I'm telling you, the one thing they disagree on is whether or not the justification that we have in faith alone is ours in virtue of the imputation of oh, yeah. Christ's moral righteousness. Mm-hmm. So we haven't talked about imputation versus infusion. Uh, yeah. Imputation is this just, a, a count, again, it's, it's very forensic, right? Imputation is, uh, it's a transfer, it's a crediting, it's a treating as if we had uh, this innocence or this uh, righteousness. So um, the, the Protestant view is typically described as as, as a imputed righteousness, right? We're we are imputed righteous uh, because of Christ. We are not in fact righteous on the moment, but we are counted as if we were righteous. Yeah. And the Catholics uh, would say, oh, no, the grace, the righteousness of Christ is infused into us. We are transformed there. Once again, I think it's a false dilemma between Catholics and Protestants because both views teach uh, imputed and infused righteousness. They just don't place it under the banner of what they call justification. But once again, both of them are there. Yeah. On the Protestant side, we say that we are um, uh, credited, we're imputed, uh, right? There's an imputation 
at the moment of justification. And then there is clearly an infusion, right? So we won't use that word because it sounds like a papist, but <laughs> that's right. the Holy Spirit is transforming us. And that's yeah. the a grace that is infused in us. And we are becoming better. And that's what we call sanctification. Uh, and then the Catholic side also, as I said, has an imputation because of that uh, accounting for past sins, right? So you are guilty of them and somehow you're declared innocent. You're acquitted of them. So there's got to be an accrediting of a legal uh, you know, pardon here. Yeah. Now, the, the piece that is still controversial and even among Protestants is whether or not the imputation is a transfer of Christ's moral righteousness. That is that he's, uh, Christ has performed good deeds and he is therefore he's, he's positively righteous, right? He's not just neutrally innocent. He's right. positively righteous. And it's that righteousness that's transferred to us. Um, like Mike Bird says a little bit jokingly, he says it's like a frequent flyer miles that's <laughs> transferred to us, right? From, from, right. uh, from uh, Christ's account, he's earned them and we they're transferred to us. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is the point of disagreement between N.T. Wright and John Piper, is whether there's that imputation of Christ's positive righteousness. Yeah. But that's that's you know that that's an interesting way of disagreeing, and I think that there are some interest in that debate. But I find it to be very secondary to the question of what must I do to have eternal life. Yeah, which is really what separates Protestants and Catholics. Yeah. And um, the imputation that's at stake here is not even the full um, the full enchilada that we put under imputation because. Uh, imputation is both um, like there's a double imputation. Yeah, uh, that's, I was. I'm glad you said that because that, that's that's the terminology a lot of people are thinking right now. There's it's a debate between double and single imputation. Exactly. And exactly. and and I don't uh, think that right denies uh, the imputation of our sins to Christ. Right. So no. Yeah. He's yeah. He holds to. From what I've heard of him and read of him briefly is that he holds to a single imputation, our uh, our sins to Christ. Exactly. But, but not necessarily. A, a positive, active, you know, moral righteousness in, then imputed, imputed to us. And right. there's some some reformed bros are listening right now and they're going, you know, I think it was John Gershner maybe who, who on his deathbed said, it was him or, or one of the good old reformed bros um, said, you know, uh, I'm thankful for, for the active obedience of Christ, no hope, no hope without it or something like that. And so some people have taken that and really, really, really hammered that and made that a, a primary issue that if you don't hold a double imputation, then you're not a Christian. I'm not one of those people. Uh, I'm still, I, I think I hold a double imputation, but yeah, my brother is very adamantly, you know, single imputation. I think he's wrong, but um, yeah, it is. I think it still is an in-house debate. Uh, yeah, it is. And, and frankly, even those who say that, uh, I mean, there's also a place for the person who says uh, the imputation of Christ's righteousness makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it's just not explicitly taught in scripture. Sure, right. That, that's one view that also can can be placed in the middle there. That's it's a it's a construct, right? It's a legal de 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 description of what goes on, uh, but the outcome of the uh, judgment is the same for the for those who say just single imputation that our sins are imputed to Christ. Right? He bears the penalty for our sins. Yeah. As a result, we are acquitted for them, and we have eternal life. Yeah, we're justified because God exactly. doesn't look at our sins anymore. Whereas the double imputationist would say, well, Christ sees God, the Father sees Christ when He looks at us. But the same, yeah, 
I don't want to minimize one, but yeah, Yeah. I gotcha. In in all cases, we are treated as if we were innocent and as if we had as much righteousness as Christ. You know, that's one way of phrasing it. So the the takeaway from this is not to try to arbitrate whether that idea is taught in the Bible or whether it's true or whether it's very important. The takeaway is this, that uh, in Protestant versus Catholic discussions on justification, the new perspective on Paul, and especially in the way that it's articulated by N.T. Wright, does nothing. Basically, this is not changing any of the terms of the debate, and anti right is fully in line with the traditionally reformed view that mm. we are declared innocent, we are acquitted, it's a legal pronouncement, and it's based on faith. Like that also is uh, what anti uh, right says. So it's a fully Protestant view there, and this makes no room for the sacramental system of the Catholic Church with baptism and confession. Yeah, that's... That's good to hear. Is there is there any kind of growing uh, justification for N.T. Wright? So I don't know if he uses the word justification for whatever is growing, but N.T. Wright clearly described this process that Protestants call sanctification. Sure. N.T. Wright is the one who says that at the end of life, there is a judgment based on works. Right. Mm-hmm. So the, that's the final justification. I think Piper says that as well. And sometimes he, yeah, he does. He's gotten ha- hammered for that. Work. Some of the more, yeah, uh, reformed yeah. guys uh, who say, "Wow, what? Based on works?" But again, the reasoning here is the same: is to say, if you judge me at the end of my life on the basis of my good works, it's just a proxy to see that I had genuine saving faith. And the reason it's a reliable proxy is because the good works will always necessarily follow from the initial justification. So, anti yeah. uh, right hammers that out very clearly, and I yeah. think it's a sound Protestant view. Yeah, and it's a it's a Protestant view of of good works, and they're getting that from Scripture, and they're trying to be faithful to what the phenomenon of Scripture says as well. So. Yeah, it's it's important. So all that to say, I'm I'm really grateful that that you go into uh, Piper and N.T. Wright. So the, we we kind of went uh, a little off to the uh, into an in-house debate with amongst Protestants, but it's awesome, man. I'm really excited for that. So yeah. thank you, thanks for doing that. Um, so I really yeah, well, so I, I, just messing up a little bit of of the the whole model I've painted. That uh, if you allow me to drive that uh, that yeah, topic, do it, do it the completion of the picture I'm painting. Yeah. Um, because I, for the sake of clarity, I've really painted a view that I think is quite coherent uh, on each side, right? Where you can see clearly these are two different models and the models are internally coherent, right? That this is a coherent way of describing what you must do to have eternal life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, and, and what I've described as the Catholic view is I think what is the main line, middle of the road answer to the question, what must I do to have eternal life? Yeah. But... In the sources, it's a bit more messy than this. And there are some caveats that uh, now a Protestant can look at and ask the question, is the Catholic Catholic view actually consistent here? Is it actually coherent about everything that is taught in the Catholic sources? Mm -hmm. And to phrase it as mildly as I can, there's at least tensions between three streams in the Catholic sources. And this is my nice way of not saying there's outright contradictions, yeah. uh, but there's there's con- there's tensions between three streams. One is the main sacramental system I've just described, and another one is old old school exclusions, and and the third one is uh, more recent inclusions. So the old school exclusions are a whole stream of declarations in somewhat of the older authoritative sources of Catholicism, so the yeah. older 
papal decrees and uh, councils, where there's full de declarations that you cannot be saved if you're not a Catholic. Yeah. Right. So uh, there's declarations that you cannot be saved if you're not part of the Catholic Church, if you're not a Catholic, or if you're not in submission to the Pope, for example. Mm -hmm. All of those have been used to say, or you know, to declare the schismatics uh, that, on the basis of things that Protestants clearly would say, yeah, we're, we're separated in that sense. Those are condemned, anathematized, and there's explicit statement that you cannot be saved if there's that. Yeah. That if you if you're out. So those exclusions, you can see don't really match well with the sacramental system I've just described, because on that system, if you have a valid baptism, you can be saved, even if you don't actively, uh, if you're not present in the Catholic Church, uh, or if you don't submit to the Pope, right? If you're not committing a mortal sin, then you could be in a state of grace, even oh, though yeah. you're not in the Catholic Church. Well, would they, would they just say that... And it depends on who you ask. So I'm That's sorry correct. to say, That's to correct. say Dave. Yeah. But, but as, could, could, might, might someone say, um, there's no chance that you're making it through life without committing a mortal sin though? Uh, that's one way of, of putting it. Uh, okay. and especially for those who think that receiving, uh, that failing to receive, uh, the Eucharist is a mortal sin. Okay. So it's a very conservative side of the gotcha. aisle uh, today, but there is a, a, a segment that does say that failing to receive the Eucharist is really serious. It's a mortal sin. Okay. So if that's the case, then Protestants are committing as soon as the first Sunday comes around, right? <laughs> so yeah. you, you receive right. your baptism, you're in a state of grace, but then you fail to receive uh, the, the Eucharist because the Protestant Eucharist is not seen as valid uh, from the Catholic side. Sure. Right? sure. They say baptism is fine, but the Eucharist, you need an ordained priest in order to perform that transformation of the Eucharist into yeah. the body of Christ. In the order of Melchizedek, otherwise it doesn't count. Um, so, so then, yes, that, there's that part where the, you might say, well, you you know, you're going to be committing a mortal sin or simply failing to be a Catholic could be declared to be a mortal sin, right? So if that's the case, then... Oh, yeah, being yeah, being schismatic. I know that yeah. like schism is huge for them. And as I've learned more about Catholic theology more, I'm like, ah, oh, man, maybe we should, maybe I should care a little bit more about schism. Right. Uh, they, so, they really take it hard. It, it, as a Protestant, we're like... A way, yeah, so this would be a, a way of uh, harmonizing the sacramental system with these old school exclusions by saying, no, you are excluded. Uh, the sacramental system still holds, but you're still excluded. There's a, the opposite attempt, which is to reconcile them by saying you're not excluded, mm -hmm. uh, but the old school uh, exclusions meant something a bit lighter than they sound. And they say, well, unless you're a Catholic, well, you know, unless you're part of the Catholic Church, but maybe you're a member of the Catholic Church that's just not in full communion. Yeah. Or there's ways of, of downplaying really the strong language about being a Catholic or being in submission to the Pope. Right. So that's well, you're, you're not you, you don't like the Pope and you're out there saying that you don't believe in the papacy, but. You're really a Christian, you're a baptized Christian, so you're in some sense subject to his authority or something yeah. like that. So you, you can uh, formulate things in a way that you remove the exclusions now to keep them consistent with the sacramental system, but in a way that doesn't exclude the non-Catholics like you and me. Right. 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 So that's that's two different approaches, but to resolve what is obviously a tension here between those old school exclusions and the sacramental system I've just described. Yeah. And now there's the more modern inclusions that's also in tension on the other side of the horse. Mm -hmm. So uh, on the other side are modern inclusions, uh, notably in Vatican II, that declare that you can be saved even if you're not a Christian. 
So yeah, the, the anonymous yeah, Christian. The old schools was were saying you cannot be saved unless you're Catholic. Yeah. And the, new, the, the, the recent inclusions say you can be saved even if you're not a Christian. So yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a old uh, discussion of anonymous Christians. Uh, there's very explicit teachings in uh, Vatican II that uh, even Muslims or uh, unbelievers, like atheists, yeah. uh, can be saved. They can have the light of, uh, of Christ uh, and they can have eternal life. Yeah. So there's, again, uh, there's going to be some important discussion of the criteria, like what qualifies <laughs> uh, for, for those. Uh, and you can go to the sources in Vatican II. Uh, and there's clearly d- debates and conversations within Catholicism about those, uh, mm-hmm. because some take it all the way and some take it the other way. Um, so that there's a range of interpretations of that. Um, and there's, there's genuine disagreements there. But you can see that a teaching that says you can be saved even if you're not a Christian would also conflict with uh, the sacramental system that I've just explained, where if you need to be baptized minimally, right? right? So if right. baptism is what gets you into the state of grace, uh, then you can have it without the baptism. And then um, after that, if you commit mortal sin, confession, again, confession is something you only get in the Catholic Church. So uh, this is also in tension with the sacramental system, those uh, more modern inclusions. And then you put all of it together and you can see the problem becomes even larger because even if you try to fit in the sacramental system with on with the old school ex, um, old school exclusions and you try to fit in the, the modern inclusions with the sacramental system, it's all the much harder to fit in the old school exclusion yeah. and the and the more modern uh, inclusions. Man, it's a mouthful for a French <laughs> with an accent. It's hard, but you can see what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. So if each is individually hard to reconcile with the sacramental system, you can see that both of them, like the exclusions and the inclusions are really much harder because you're holding at the same time that it's impossible to be saved unless you're a Catholic, but it's possible to be saved even if you're not a Christian. Right. So, so now yeah. this is really intention. So I think there's, there's, there's room here to argue from the Protestant side to say, no, the sources are not consistent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sources are incoherent and there's contradictions there. And so therefore, you know, it's false. Like so one, one of those things must be false. And that's mm-hmm. an argument that as a Protestant, I'm prepared to make um, against the sources, but I'm going to have to interact with all of the you know, possible reconciliations here. But the, the, the main takeaway here is that I think the main answer of the Catholic side is really that sacramental system. So it doesn't fit super nicely with all those those two sides, but I think that the, the sacramental system is at the center of the Catholic uh, system of salvation, and it allows me to have all of those reflections that you've had, uh, that we've discussed in this show about the place of works, uh, what must I do to have eternal life, are Protestants saved? Those kinds of things can be properly analyzed with the sacramental system without doing too much violence to the Catholic view, even if there's tensions on each side. Yeah. Well, and, and for the listener who wants to know a little bit more about like uh, Vatican II type stuff and Karl Rahner and von Balthasar, um, I did have a uh, conversation with Camden Busey, who did his, his PhD work on Rahner, uh, and we talked a little bit about anonymous Christians and, uh, you know, picking up signals as a... Uh, radio transceiver type thing. Um, it's really fascinating, really interesting, but Guillaume, man, I, I think you're right that there is some internal, uh, if not contradiction, like there's some, you know. I, I, I think it doesn't fit well. So let's, yeah. let's 
phrase it more modestly. Uh, yeah. I, I, I plan to argue there's a contradiction, but it's a lot of work. Uh, what I'm doing for that is that I'm reading all of the guys with the big guns who were at the table at Vatican II. So, yes, the runner, the Van Balthazar, uh, the two French guys, uh, Henri de Lubac and Yves Congar. Um, so this is great because I get how, to... how how would we say them? Like, because I'm not going to be I can't even spell that from the way you said it. Uh, so uh, Henri de Lubac, so uh, Henry with an I instead of a Y, right? So Henri, uh, and that's D E de, uh, and then L U B A C Lubac. So Henri de Lubac. Yeah. And okay. then you have uh, Yves Congar. So Yves is Y V E S. Yeah. That's a dude, right? So Yves. Right, not, right. So Yves. <laughs> Congar, C-O-N-G-A-R. Yeah, I've so, heard. Yeah, I know that was. We'd probably say Congar. So, so or th these yeah. four here are really the big guns at the table in Vatican II: uh, Ranner, Van Balthazar, uh, De Lubac, and Congar. And yeah. so I, I'm reading their writings um, outside of the ones that made it into the canons of the the council, right? So just right. their personal writings on the topic, because it's educational about what they intended with the things that made it into the text of Vatican II, and consistently what you find is that they tend to be fairly much on the liberal side. Um, yep. So there, there are liberal and cons conservative readings of Vatican II within Catholicism. Uh, and yes, uh, the, the folks at the table in Vatican II tend to be on the more liberal side. I mean, there's discussions of possibility of everyone being saved. Yeah, in Balthazar, there we hope that everyone shall be saved. Uh, Rainer with the anonymous Christian um, really toys with the idea that maybe almost everyone is an anonymous Christian, uh, mm -hmm. that people have implicit faith uh, just like that um, so th that tends to be much more liberal than my conservative Catholic friends uh, are comfortable with but yeah. they are the big guns at the table of Vatican II who were behind the text of the, the, the these inclusions uh, of the non-believers into the possibility of salvation yeah. so Again, there's a, it's a tricky place for the conservative Catholic to to uh, deal with, uh, but that's um, that's part of the general study I'm doing to, yeah. to give a, a fair hearing to the sources uh, and let them speak for themselves. Yeah, and and when I talk to you about this, uh, it always reminds me that like I need to talk uh, to more Catholics as well, Roman Catholics, to get get clear on this. But is there any chance that a conservative Catholic could just Say I'm I'm not going with Vatican II, or because the the Pope has spoken ex cathedra, is that in? They have to have Vatican II. So uh, that gets into a very technical discussion about the sources of authority for Catholicism, mm -hmm. uh, and it's not entirely uncontroversial there either. Like what sure. what makes a source authoritative and part of the Catholic faith faith. Um, it's, there's, there's controversies there, and that's, that's part of my readings as well to ramp up correctly on the internal debates about what makes a source authoritative or not. But more often than not, a council, like, and, and what they say as, what they see as an ecumenical council of the Catholic Church, the canons and decrees are fully authoritative. Okay. So, um, Again, you can find the Catholic who says, no, I'm going to define my sources of authority a bit differently, and I'm going to give myself the freedom to accept or reject those. Uh, and maybe that's an internally consistent way of dealing with the sources. It's not what typically is uh, done by Catholics, and I think it would be frowned upon and looked down on by conservative Catholics who say, no, 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 the councils are in, the infallible proclamations of the Pope when he speaks ex cathedra, this is all in, and the, Catholic, the catechism of the Catholic Church is a faithful um, representation of official 
authoritative Catholic doctrine. So yeah. I don't think that it's going to be a common place for the conservative, uh, theologically conservative, as yeah. in believing Catholic who really tries to make sense <clears throat> of the teachings of the church to say, I'm, I'm fine with all the councils, but then uh, Vatican II is out. That's that's not really a good place okay. to be. Okay. Um, well, Guillaume, you got this. I remember this from our conversation, uh, and it's I really like it, but uh, you get these four four propositions, and uh, P justification, uh, P faith alone. I can't remember the other ones because I don't see it on the list. But is it C? Do you see, do you just say C for for Catholic C justification and can you lay yeah. it out for us the four, the yes. four propositions? So that's that's another way that I, I hope to bring a bit of clarity uh, because um, we have seen we've we've seen that justification is uh, a term that is used differently by Protestants and Catholics. Yeah. But in the phrase justification by faith alone, there's another word that is plagued with an equivocation, and it's faith. Yeah. So faith, typically by Protestants, is understood to be this active, life-giving, saving faith that is a really an active trust in Jesus. Um, you know, the, the official, the, the reformers talked about uh, the notitia, the, the notes, the data, and then ascensus for the intellectual ascent. Yeah. And for the active trust, right? So that's that's all packed in what Protestants mean by faith. Uh, more often than not, Catholics, when they speak of faith, just the word faith, they are only referring to the intellectual assent. Mm-hmm. As if you, it's not the active trust. So they see uh, like faith, hope, and love as three different things, uh, and they say faith doesn't have that hope and love that's in there. That Protestants tend to kind of group into the actual robust sense of saving faith. Yeah. So. If that's the case, and the Protestant use of the word faith is this actually loaded, uh, active uh, trust in Christ, but the Catholic use of the word is purely just the intellectual ascent. Then yeah, that, the essentia, right? That's the, the Latin. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's what the Protestants would call essentia. Yeah, essentius. Um, so the, if, if that's the use of the word, then you have two equivocations now in the phrase, uh, are we justified by faith alone? And so that means that typic- uh, technically, you could be asking four different questions <laughs> when you say, are we justified by faith alone? Yeah. And so I, I try to clarify and say there, there's C justification, right? Catholic justification, P justification, which is Protestant justification. And then there's C faith, right? Catholic faith, and P faith, Protestant faith. And so you can mix and match and ask, are we uh, C justified by C faith alone? Are we uh, C justified by P faith alone? Are we... Uh, see justified. Oh, I, I lost it. I'm sure. <laughs> Basically, P justified by P faith alone. P justified by C faith faith alone. C justified by P faith alone, or C justified by C faith alone. Yep. Right. These are the four options here. And once you clarify those, it's it's helpful to remove a lot of the potential disagreement based purely on words because of those four questions. Three of them are fully uncontroversial, and everyone says no. And it is the the question of, are we uh, see justified by see faith alone? That is, are we um, transformed morally, right? See justified by intellectual assent alone. Obviously not. Nobody says that. Right. right? right. Are we see justified, that is, uh, transformation um, uh, by P faith alone? The Protestants don't say that either, mm-hmm. right? We're not transformed morally, like the, the process of transformation is not purely by faith alone. There is good works involved in our transformation, right? Yes. Yeah. Actual uh, renewal. So we're not saying that either. Mm-hmm. And then are we P justified by C faith alone? Mm hmm. 
Mm. That is, are we legally acquitted, right, P-justified, by intellectual assent alone? No. Right. No, Protestants are very vocal about saying precisely that's the opposite, and that's a common misrepresentation to say, no, it's not just by intellectual assent, it's a life-giving, active trust in Christ. Otherwise, it's what the Bible calls as dead faith. Right. right. So uh, we're not P-justified by C-faith alone either. Mm-hmm. So the, the, those three, everyone says, no, we're not just yeah. justified by faith alone in those two senses, those combinations of the senses of those two words. The only disagreement is on whether we are P-justified by P-faith alone. Are we legally acquitted on the basis of an active trust in Jesus alone? And that's where the Protestant says yes, and the Catholic says no. We are acquitted on the basis of the fact that we are in a state of grace when we die, and that you get by baptism and confession. Yeah. So that's just another attempt to clarify that there's there's those two equivocations, four questions, three of which we all agree the answer is no, and one where we have the actual disagreement, and this is where you can lay out the two systems correctly, faith on one side, baptism and confession on the other. This is what I'm really excited about because um, you've done such a a helpful job here showing uh, the mixing and matching. And we see that happen all the time in the debates, whether it's intentional, even for being charitable. um, There's lots of room for for equivocation because there's two words being equivocated on. There's four different propositions that can be said. And even if everyone has the best intentions going into the debate, there's still going to be plenty of room for unintentional equivocation and misrepresenting each other. So I, I love the, the P and the C uh, justification and, and faith. I think it's so, so helpful for the conversation because you're not, you're not doing what, what others are tempted to do and saying, look, there's, it's all equivocation and we're all really just, let's all just be best friends. It's saying, yes, there's a equivocation, but there's a really important point. We need to separate everything so we can view these two next to each other. Yeah, that's really the, the the bulk of my work. Yeah, and and my, that's I think this is the, this is why it's so helpful. I, I found that in disagreements like this, uh, the clarification on the words and lay out clearly the view is more than half the work, really. And this has mm-hmm. been my experience in my work on free will as well. Once you've really clarified all of the terms, understand the concepts, lay them out clearly, it's removing so much misunderstanding that you can almost see the arguments unfold of themselves. And there's it's removing the controversy, if you will. Yeah. So obviously, there's going to be still disagreement. And yeah, you, you may- you've sharpened yeah making it focused on okay this is where we disagree and here is why and then we can clean all the bad arguments caused by the confusion on the words yeah do you in in your reading have you seen anyone who has gotten to that clear point uh maybe two interlocutors that have debated that have debated on the the right things the, the real crux of the matter I have not seen a debate on that question being okay. this sharply focused. I've seen some folks uh, clearly touch on a lot of the points. I mean, technically, I, I'm throwing Hans Kung and Peter Crift under the bus here, but technically, <laughs> I need to give them props for sure. at least seeing the beginning of what I was talking about. It's like they're, they're seeing that. Yeah. On the Protestant side, one that really gets it well is uh, Tony Lane. Uh, okay. or, uh, he writes with uh, A.N.S. Lane, uh, and he's got a, a fantastic book called uh, Justification by Faith in Protestant Catholic Dialogues. Hmm. Uh, and he sees a lot of that equivocation on justification. Okay. So uh, I think he's, he's, not, um, like he, he's a really reliable source to walk you through that disagreement. I, I don't think he unpacks 
um, the consequences of that equivocation as deeply as I have in this conversation and where I plan to do it in my writings yeah. about all the, the places of good works and all of that uh, and the question of whether a Protestant can be saved and how that works with the older exclusion and the modern inclusions all of those things that I'm trying to unpack I, I, I can't really quite find in uh, Tony Lane's writings but the equivocation is fully analyzed and he does, he says some really helpful things there yeah Man, well, that's, that's awesome. So, um, yeah, the cat got out of the bag. Uh, I was trying to get you to talk about this for a while, but you said, I need to write it first. I'm really glad that you had, you're, you're willing to have this conversation with me. But what's, what's next? Uh, there's going to be people who probably will want to debate you. Is there any, I, any chance that you would debate or do you need to write the book first or, or, or are you just not going to debate at all? What do you think about that? I don't really know what I'm going to make now. I was thinking I would take my, uh, I mean, I think I need still another few years to complete the scholarly writing on this uh, sure. because the sources are messy. I mean, this is just to assure you. Uh, these are my notes right now. <laughs> my handwritten notes on on the topic, and that's that's years of of work on the subject. Yeah. Uh, I suspect I still have at least this much again to to do, uh, because again I want to be careful with all the sources and uh, collect the right arguments and interact with them correctly. Yeah. Um, so the the writing is going to take me quite a while. Uh, I'm hoping that now that the material is out in at least oral form in YouTube, uh, that maybe I will receive some interesting constructive feedback that will make me uh, sharpen my argument and my critique. Yeah. Technically, I haven't really argued for much more uh, for much. Right. In this conversation, this is where it's interesting that I do plan as part of my writings to make a strong case for the Protestant side on uh, why our justification is in fact by faith alone. Uh, you know that that not that the um, P justification by P yeah, faith. That's right, exactly. Yeah. That, that question, the answer is yes, and the Protest and the Protestants have it right. Um, but I haven't really laid out my case here. Yeah. Uh, so I do plan to lay that out, but purely the clarifications I think are helpful. So I'm yeah. them out, and Catholics can run with this, and and also um, you know give me a run for my money even on my comprehension of the Catholic sources. Right. I'm being very careful, and I'm presenting some view that's fairly compelling, um, but. Because, you know, again, it has merits, right? So if you accept this understanding of the Catholic view, you as a Catholic can say, oh, yeah, now I can see fully why it's not based on our good works, right? Which I think is a virtue for a soteriology sure. being based on good works. Right. Uh, so, so there's there's ways that the Catholic can benefit from uh, this uh, focus I, I'm, I'm bringing. Uh, but I have technically not said tons that I guess all that controversial tonight. I'm just clarifying what I've seen in the sources. Yeah. Uh, and then, then we'll see if that leads to debates on uh, who's got it right. But at yeah. least equipping good debates to happen and that's probably a good thing to do yeah definitely and and if nothing more uh well for now i'm just gonna pass this to gavin because gavin's like the nicest dude in the world and gavin ortland for those who are listening he's had like some really amazing conversations with uh with catholics on youtube and the dude's fantastic he's super super kind and everyone seems to love him on every side. So uh, even, yeah, once you sharpen this up, we'll just hide behind Gavin and, and have him talk for <laughs> Exactly. And he can do the debates. I've actually discussed with Gavin recently. Uh, so I've, I've got a chance to, to share much of that material. And uh, awesome. very, very fruitful conversation. So, yeah. Well, and yes, we all love Gavin. Who doesn't? Yeah, seriously, man. He's the best. Well, uh, Guillaume, man, thanks, thanks so much for for walking me through this and helping me again, man, this, I think we did a good job of, of repersonating that, that first conversation that we had. Um, I, seriously, thank you for all your time here. Is there anything else? Is there anything like you, we missed out that you must say about, about what you've done so far? 
I don't know. I think that we've really covered everything. The place of work, imputation, infusion, uh, the sacramental systems, the old school inclusions. That's just yeah. about right. That, that's pretty much my uh, diet of uh, research and writing for the next few years. So <laughs> we, we've got it all. That's awesome. Well, okay, Guillaume. So um, how about uh, a place to find you? Where, where can people find you and your work in the meantime while you're busy uh, slaving away on this book? Yeah, uh, so I mean, I'm uh, I'm active on Twitter, uh, where my handle is uh, theology, uh, so T H E O L O G U I. Um, so theology, but with G U I at the end for Guillaume. Um, so that's that's one place to find me uh, for the public. Uh, I also have a blog, uh, theology.blogspot.com, but I, it's not super active, and that's mostly you get my work on free will. So my work on justification is not really out. This is kind of the the first times that I'm putting it out there. Uh, So there's not much more for anyone to go and dig into my work on justification. For that, they'll need to be patient and wait for the book, which I doubt will come out before another four to five years. Um, But um, as far as uh, my own writings, uh, I also have my book, Confessions of the French Atheist, uh, which is coming out uh, later this year uh, and is already on pre-order everywhere. So that's that's another piece of my work that can be found if people uh, are interested in uh, theology uh, with a philosophical bent and a French accent. Yeah. That's awesome, man. And then again, uh, we've had at least, yeah, we've had two other conversations. One behind the the Patreon paywall, because we're holding on to it till somewhere around June 2022 uh, with the book release. Uh, but you can still find our other one. Did God determine you to listen to this episode? Something like that. Uh, maybe I could put a link in the description. But uh, so there's like, you know, six hours that you can hear uh, Guillaume and his beautiful french accent talking with me schooling me on theology yeah we've uh, talked a lot that's right man hopefully more i want to do even more i love it um all right well that's gonna have to do it folks this uh was a great one i really appreciate guillaume uh that's gonna have to do it for now uh this has been parker's pensies and as always all glory to god <laughs>